Welcome to Change My Mind. Over 80% of people think we are becoming more divided. But does it have to be that way? We're bringing together leaders to ask them about a time they changed their mind and why, giving us all an insight into what holds us back and why changing our mind can be such a powerful thing. I'm Ali Goldsworthy, based at Stanford in California and founder of the Depolarization Project. I'm hosting with Laura Osborne. Hello, thanks, Ali. I can't wait to dig into what changing our minds means for reputation, and particularly with today's guest, as well as how this impacts the future of our workplaces and, of course, society at large. And Alex Chesterfield, an elected counsellor and behavioural scientist who's going to introduce our guest, who is never afraid to challenge an orthodoxy. Thanks, Ali. I'm delighted to be joined by John Haidt. John is one of the world's leading behavioural scientists. His book, The Righteous Mind, transformed how we think about ourselves and others. Speaking to us from the studio at New York University Stern School of Business, where he's a professor of moral psychology, John will be in the UK this week, launching his latest bestseller, Coddling of the American Mind. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you, Alex. Pleasure to be here. You've highlighted really alarming data on how we are increasingly divided by political party. Can you explain a little bit more about how we got here? Oh, my goodness. Um, It's a long and tragic story with many, many narrative threads and wrong turns. Um, Often the way to understand a strange thing is not uh, how did we get here, but rather where were we before uh, that we're now in such a different place? And at least in the United States, a lot will be similar in the UK, but at least in the United States, the way to put it is that the the mid to late 20th century was a really historically unusual time. Um, I like to think about uh, large, secular, diverse democracies as strange contraptions that in theory shouldn't be able to fly, um, given everything we know about the human propensity for tribalism and the the power of of religion and and, uh, blood and soil to, to link people together. Um, having a large, secular, diverse democracy should be a difficult undertaking. And in the United States, in the mid to late 20th century, all the forces were aligned to keep us together and uh, give us a a strong uh, civic life and civic spirit. So uh, the most powerful of which, of course, is having a foreign enemy. And so going from, you know, fighting two world wars and the, the Great Depression and then going straight into the Cold War. So we had a pretty good run of a 20th century with a lot of uh, enemies straight out of central casting. And that all ended in, you know, 1989 through the early 90s. We had an unusual media environment. Um, In the early days of the Republic, all of the media was partisan and full of lies and slander. Uh, But in in the mid 20th century, after television was invented, we had broadcasting controls. We had three networks, all very centralized. And that began to fray in the 1980s with cable television and then onto the internet. And there's a whole bunch of other uh, things that were pulling for coherence. Of course, we had a lot of violence and conflict in the 1960s, but the forces holding us together were very strong, stronger than the forces blowing us apart. One by one, they've weakened. And I would say that now the forces blowing us apart, the centrifugal forces, if you like, are generally stronger than the centripetal forces pulling us in. Hmm. And, and what are these forces that are blowing us apart? So um, diversity is certainly one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, in, uh, so I'm a professor at New York University and in higher education in the United States, we talk all day long about diversity. We love diversity. And of course, diversity has many positive effects. It helps with creativity. Life is more interesting. The food is sure a lot better. <laughs> um, so, but, but at the same time, basic social psychology experiments show us that it's very, very easy to divide people. So the more you emphasize the differences between groups, the less trust there is, the, the easier it is to turn people against each other. And in the 20th century, we, of course, America has always been a nation of immigrants, and we still are very pro-immigrant compared to most European countries. We have very strong support for immigration in this country. Uh, but the 20th century was done with an assimilationist mindset. So my grandparents all came to America from Poland and Russia. I'm Jewish. It was the standard stereotypical Jewish story, mm -hmm. fleeing pogroms in poverty and oppression. Mm -hmm. They came here in the great wave of immigration around 1907. And their children became fully Americans to the point where a common Yiddish phrase of the mid-20th century was Amerikanische Kinder. These, where, do the, where do these American children come from? Who are they? Um, and so assimilation worked very, very well uh, for the Jews. It worked very well for my wife's parents. She's Korean. And so America um, was very good at assimilating and creating a superordinate American identity. But I think now, uh, as we've been more sensitive to matters of exclusion and racism, which is a good thing, I think it's led to uh, an attitude in, in intellectual circles that assimilation is some just a step short of genocide and that it's a bad word. Um, so I think that's a mistake, and I think we need to rethink that. And just broadening out, why, why is this increasing polarization so bad? So, you know, what are the consequences for us as individuals and society at large? Uh, so a, a kind of a master variable in sociology and political science is trust. Lots of good things happen when you can trust your neighbors and when you can trust political institutions. Amazing, wonderful things happen. And so, you know, many of us have been to Scandinavia, or, and if we haven't, you know, we, we wish we lived there or we wish our countries could be more like them. Um, and I visited three Scandinavian countries with my family in, in 2016. And it's just amazing what you can do when you have such high trust. You don't have to monitor. You don't have to have a lot of police. Uh, the elections are free and fair and just wonderful things happen. Uh, another really important thing I'm learning is that we let our kids out. And Americans used to do that. We used to let our kids walk outside without us. Um, now, uh, and that was um, by the age of seven. It was always the case. Uh, but since the 1990s, because we don't trust each other, because we're so afraid that someone will kidnap our kids, we stopped letting them out in the 1990s. And now they don't let, we're not, we don't let them out of our sight until they're around 12 to 14. Uh, you know, it's, it's it, 10 in some areas, but it's much later. And this, I think, is one of the main reasons that we have such rising rates of fragility and mental illness. So I'm sorry, I'm going, there's so many threads to trace out here, but trust is incredibly important. And if you, if you don't manage diversity well, I mean, you, diversity, you know, in Australia, it's working, in Canada, it's working a lot better than here. So it can be done. But in the United States and in many European countries, I think we've managed it badly and it ends up uh, reducing trust, not just across ethnic lines, but even just among everyone. That's really interesting. I know in the UK, particularly in the context of Brexit and the referendum vote, one of our previous guests, Deborah Mattinson, so she was a former pollster to the UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. And her sense or her, her research suggests that the UK is predominantly fragmenting across generational rather than partisan 
lines and that you see this breakdown of trust amongst generations, so older versus younger, rather than party lines. It'd be interesting to get your your views on that and the extent to which you see this in the States and the extent to which you, you perhaps agree with this analysis. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, divisions can come up uh, along just about any dimension where people uh, perceive that there is a conflict of interests. And I have not noticed that in the United States, that there's a conflict across generations. So first I'd I'd ask you to distinguish, is it that Britain is fragmenting in that the attitudes of the younger people are really different from the older people? I certainly know that's the case with regard to Brexit. Or are you saying that they're fragmenting in that younger people express hostility to older people and older people express hostility to youngers? There's some of that. But actually, people find it really hard to be hostile to their own grandmother, for example. So there was some work that Ipsos Mori did on that, which showed that there was this increasing resentment of a concentration of resources and financial support, often from from government, towards older people, while younger people really struggled to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. And but as soon as you place it in the personal context, people find it very hard hard to continue to hold that view, which is why the the politics of that situation persists, and it's really hard to try and, and resolve it. Yeah, I see. Uh, so I haven't noticed that happening here. I mean, we certainly have had a budgetary mess for a long time caused by our incredibly inefficient healthcare system, which guarantees full medical coverage to the elderly, which guarantees that vast and increasing sums of our budget go to the elderly, leaving less for the young. But I've seen no signs that that has led to actual hostility across generations here. One thing that's very, very important to note as we all struggle to figure out what the hell is going on, you know, everything was going so well in the 90s and the triumph of democracy and declining poverty around the world. And then somehow everything just seems to have gone to hell or begun to go to hell in the last five or 10 years. Um, The most important thing I think we have to keep our eye on is social media. That is, um, if you think about human beings in an extended network, a vast network that's very clumpy, that is, we're not all connected together. There are little clumps here and there. And you imagine this network changing gradually over the course of the last 50,000 years, um, you know, and the invention of the, the telephone was a, you know, or the, you know, the Gutenberg and the printing press was one and the telephone was another and the, the cable TV and, and then the internet. Well, uh, you know, social media in particular has been uh, like you change the network by a fact, you change the connectivity by a factor of 10 or a thousand even. Um, and so the reason I'm bringing this up now is because a thought has been occurring to me as I, as I look at, you know, my kids, my kids are eight and 12 and they're not on social media. I'm not, they, you know, they can watch Netflix and videos, but I don't let them on any kind of social media. But as I look at the way kids use it, um, never in history have young people been so connected to other young people and therefore so cut off from the accumulated wisdom of humanity uh, or even just their parents' generation? I don't think that has ever happened in all of human history before. Um, So the idea that you could have ideas spreading among young people that make no sense to older people, I do believe that is happening. I do see that on campus. Um, so I think there could be, if you're, if you're finding the generation splitting apart in the UK, I would look to social media as one of the reasons. Mm. And there's something fascinating going on, I think, there, John, between the difference between what you're exposed to, you know, in the physical world, going back to your point on sort of safetyism and how we raise our children versus what they then encounter online. So I wonder if um, that's come up at all in terms of if people are protecting children so much from what they experience day to day, you know, be that going out on their own building that resilience and yet 
you know, in, in the world of social media, those controls are not there. What, what that's, that's right. what that does to their that's right general resilience. Yeah. So I think I think there's two psychological development paths that we have to keep separate. One is learning to master physical risk, and the other is reputational concerns. And I think they're entirely different things. So one thing we're beginning to see in the United States, um, kids are not just, uh, or teenagers are having not just skyrocketing rates of um, depression and anxiety, especially for, for girls. Um, we're also seeing that they're, they're slow or, or retarded, you know, delayed in their physical development. The military reports that recruits are much less physically able than they were 10 or 20 years ago. And so because kids don't have, so there's a useful term, risk deprivation syndrome. Um, if you look at kids at play, uh, you know, if they learn to skateboard, well, the next thing they do is they start skateboarding downstairs because they want a certain level of risk. Um, they, you know, if there's a tree, they'll climb it in the first day just a little bit, but then they want to go higher. Uh, we have a developmental program inside us that motivates us to test our abilities and therefore to expand our abilities. But what we've done in America, and I believe you're just as guilty in the UK, is, um, you know, as we get richer and as we have fewer children, we overprotect them. We invest more in them. And the thought of our kids climbing a tree becomes intolerable. What if she falls? We can't allow that. Uh, in some school districts, um, if there's a tree near a playground, the branches must be cut off. I believe this is the case in California. You can't, if you have a tree on a playground, you must cut off all the lower branches because God Whoa. forbid the kids should climb a tree. <laughs> and so we're depriving them of risk. Uh, and therefore we are basically, we are interfering with their brain development, I would say. Um, and because they're, they, they see many more things as risky. And we've told them that the world is so dangerous. You know, if I take my eyes off you, if I let you walk to school in fifth grade at the age of 10, you might be abducted. I can't have that. So we prevent them from growing strong. We tell them the world is incredibly dangerous. And we started telling them this just as the crime wave was ending in this country. When I grew up, it was really dangerous. There was a huge amount of crime in the United States. And now it's plummeted. There's not, not that much. Um, so I think we've risk deprived them uh, in the physical world. And so um, now let's look at the social world. Now you might say, well, but they're learning to take risks online. No, they're not. Because one thing that I've learned is that um, if somebody is, if there's a physical risk or a physical threat, I feel pretty comfortable facing it. I know my abilities. But what I've found is that I am a total uh, chicken or I'm frail or whatever when it comes to people attacking my reputation in ways that I can't respond to. That is, reputational destruction is really painful in a way that's very different from any sort of physical threat or pain. And I believe that young people, and this is why it's so much worse for girls. Girls are much, girls' aggression is relational. They attack each other's relationships. Boys' aggression is physical. And so smartphones and social media have multiplied girls' ability to harm other, other girls' relationships by, you know, a factor of 10 or 100. Um, so I don't think this is something that we really adapt to. And I, and I think it has really crippling effects to be constantly exposed to reputational destruction. And so what, what do you think happens then when children of this generation, and it's just throwing forward a bit, when they enter the workforce, what are the consequences at that stage? So we, know, we already know what the consequences are. Um, when, so I wrote an article in 2015 with Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind about what was going on on campus. Now, we didn't know it at the time. We didn't know that this generation is not the millennials. We didn't know that um, the kids arriving on college campuses in 2013 who were born in 1995, we didn't know that that is a new generation called iGen or Gen Z. Uh, but as they filled colleges by 2016, 2017, 
um, we began to see this culture of safetyism, the, the request for safe spaces, trigger warnings, uh, reaction to microaggressions. Uh, this was all new. We, none of us had seen this practically. None of, I, I certainly hadn't until 2014. And people said at the time when we wrote our article, oh, come on, you're overreacting, you're catastrophizing. When these kids leave college, when they join the real world, they're going to have to grow up. They won't be able to do this at work. And that sounded like a reasonable argument in 2015. In 2018, we know it's not true. That is, um, in industries that hire from America's elite colleges. Now, most college students are fine. Most uh, universities don't have the, the safe space culture. But our top liberal arts schools in the Northeast and the West Coast do. Our Ivy League schools do. So in the elite industries, especially in media, tech, and journalism, where they hire a lot of young people fresh out of Middlebury and Wellesley and Berkeley and, and Yale, um, in those industries, I'm now getting emails from people saying, oh my God, you will not believe what the interns are doing. You will not believe how they run to HR, human resources. You know, if they overhear a joke, they don't just brush it off. They don't talk to the person. They go to HR and file a report. And then as one person said in an Amazon review of the book, this explains why they're so quick to run to HR, but then they can't even come to the meeting with the person that they accused of insensitivity. So um, what I'm hearing over and over is that businesses are generally adapting to this and adopting the same policies as we have in universities. I think this is going to lead to a measurable decline in GDP because within 10 or 20 years, most of our companies will be immersed in constant uh, um, employment litigation. I'm just wondering if this is a, you talked about all these students coming from liberal arts colleges or certainly tending to come from liberal arts colleges. Um, if they're working with people who maybe don't have the same background, how do you think that is received? Mm. What do you mean different background? So uh, at the risk of making some slightly sweeping generalization, if mm. you've not been, you know, if you've not gone to a liberal arts college and grown up with some of the lexicons of safe spaces, it can sound almost absurd to mm -hmm. people. And do you think that will contribute to increasing polarization, I suppose, is, is my hypothesis? Well, it, it already contributes to polarization in that um, because we have a culture war going on in this country that young people are certainly not responsible for, they're the victims of, um, because we have a long-running culture war, which really intensified in the 1990s, and it's gone, the cross-partisan hatred has gone up steadily since then, with probably an increase in the rate of increase uh, in 2016, 2017. Um, because that's going on, um, anything that people on one side do that is offensive to people on the other will be captured on video and shown to people on this uh, on each side to outrage them against the other, and so um, you know as soon as as soon as college students started shouting down speakers and screaming obscenities at their professors, um, these were captured on video and used by right wing media. Um, it was red meat. It was it was manna from heaven for them, uh, and so these uh, absurd practices get trotted out um, by right-wing media. Now, at the same time, of course, there are horrible instances of racism and, and sexism, and those get captured on video, and those get shown to people on the left. So each side, because of social media, uh, we've gone to a regime in which as long as somebody in our country of 330 million people, as long as somebody said something stupid or offensive today, you know, then the other side will be outraged tomorrow. So yeah, we're, th this is why I'm so pessimistic, because social media... It kind of jacks into our, our our ancient evolved circuits for group conflict, and it keeps them completely turned up to eleven, as it were.
Yeah, and of course, Facebook, as their official advice for many years, I think it, it is no longer, has been to use quite polarizing sentiment to draw um, reaction. And, and, you know, we all three of us have worked for NGOs, and that's their recommendation is to use exactly that kind wow, of content yeah. to stir a reaction. That's right. It is frightening to see. I, I think, um, uh, what's his name, Tufeki, the uh, journalist, uh, uh, professor who writes the New York Times, uh, uh, wrote a, a really compelling essay about what YouTube does with its algorithms. If you watch one thing, the next thing it shows you will be further to the extreme. Mm. Yeah. John, you paint this perfect storm of safetyism, uh, kind of social media, this failure in democracy, this increase in cross-partisan hatred. Can you can you see this um, perfect storm ever ever dissolving? How how can we reverse um, yeah. these seemingly massive um, structural, often structural trends? Yeah. So let me. Yeah, that's the million dollar question, yeah. and let me let me take two stabs at it. Um, so the first is I'm a big fan of Steve Pinker um, and uh, uh, Matt Ridley and mm. many others, especially various. I have you know I have conservative and libertarian friends uh, and the liberty. So the conservatives, of course, their their narrative is generally doom and gloom. Uh, we're declining from a golden age. But the libertarians' narrative is, are you kidding me? Look at almost anything you could possibly measure. Things are getting better amazingly fast. So when you if you ask me to bet, will things be better on this planet 100 years than they are now? I have to say consciously, deliberately, yes. Even though something in my heart is screaming no, mm-hmm. um, rationally, I have to say things will be better in 100 years. Things will be better in 50 years. But when you ask me what's the way forward, I'm kind of stymied because – um, if you look at all the factors that are leading to increased polarization, most of them are not reversible. Um, and so it's very hard to see a way forward. I, I think we can save the universities. What I mean is, um, I think that in universities, the strengths that we have in, in research, in, in a grounding in evidence, I think um, uh, will save us because we can show uh, which policies are, are really bad for students' mental health, which ones poison the climate for discourse. So I think that the university setting will improve. I think uh, the evidence that that our girls especially are committing suicide at 70% higher rate than they did 10 years ago. This is such a national mm. catastrophe. It's happening in the UK too. You've got the same problems. Mm. If you look at hospital admissions for self-harm, I just saw some data from the UK, exact same thing. The boys are not up. Girls are going to the hospital at much higher rates in the US and the UK. We're talking 13-year-old girls here um, no. because they're cutting themselves. Mm. And I, so, so what I've begun doing in the United States is whenever I get a chance to speak to an audience of parents or educators, I say, please, 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 if you know the principal of an elementary school or a middle school in particular, please ask that person to set norms. Norm number one, we've got to let our kids out. We've got to find ways to let them play uh, in places that are physically safe but unsupervised. Norm number two, no social media until high school, until ninth or 10th grade. There is no reason why 11, 12, 13, even 14-year-old kids should be on social media. So I think we can set some norms that are going to lead to a stronger next generation. But I do fear that the the frailty and the the mental illness, the anxiety, uh, we don't know what's going to happen to to the the older members of, of iGen or Gen Z. They might be weak for life. We just don't know. John, that's a, a potentially quite bleak outlook, which yes. I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll dig into. Um, but remember Steve Pinker, I'm probably yeah. wrong in the long run. 
Yeah. Oh, I, um, and talking of being wrong, one question that we ask every guest who comes on the show is to tell us about an issue that they have changed their own mind on because we view that as as quite important to, to depolarizing, being open to change your mind. And yeah. before we came on air, you told me that you had a good one. Yeah, so yeah. I'm really curious to hear what sure. it is. Yeah, because it was, it was a great question because, you know, I started thinking like, where have I changed my mind? And I was able to think of things easily that basically showed how right I am now. Like there are easy things. To say, well, I used to be wrong about that. But now that I have my current beliefs, I know I'm right. Um, but I thought that would be kind of boring. And I thought, like, I want one that, you know, like makes me not look bad, but make, one that kind of goes against who I am now. And, and I thought of a great one. What I've changed my mind about is that um, testing, when testing is used in a society in which some subgroups are willing to spend a lot of time and money getting their kids test prep courses, and they're willing to sacrifice their kids' childhood whereas other groups, for whatever reason, aren't doing that, then it's unfair and inefficient and bad for kids. In 2015, I traveled with my family across Asia. Um, I was supposed to be working on a book called Three Stories About Capitalism, The Moral Psychology of Economic Life. So we're traveling across all these Asian countries to look at how they're developing. And we spent a lot of time in Korea. My wife's Korean, um, Korean American. So we had a lot of family there. And what I discovered is that in Confucian societies where they have a long history of testing, you know, the Chinese were testing for civil service like a thousand years ago or something. So they have a long history of test taking. They have a really long and intense history of test prep. And what I discovered, what we discovered is that Korean children never get to play. They have to study for their college entrance exams as soon as they can hold a pencil practically. I mean, not age two, but by age five or six, they're going to these, uh, these um, uh, cram schools. They're up, they're out until midnight. Um, prepare, you know, uh, they have no childhood. And this, I think, is terrible. And the reason is because they're all stuck in a zero-sum game. There are only three schools in Korea. There are three top schools. It's like if there was Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and everything else was a community college. That's, the, uh, that's sort of the situation in Korea. So the pressure on the kids is unbelievable. Uh, and as a result, they lose their childhood test prep. All right, so I'm thinking about that. And you know, in Japan and China, they have the same thing, but it's not as intense. Singapore. So I'm thinking about all this, and then I come back to America, and uh, we have this issue here. It's actually right now going on in New York City, where our mayor, Bill de Blasio, um, is trying to do away with the test that gets students into our competitive high schools. We have uh, four or five really selective, amazing high schools in the city. Uh, there's the SHSAT, the Scholastic or the something high school SAT. Um, and he wants to do away with it. Now, uh, we can talk, I, I think he's going way too far and he's going to cause all kinds of problems. So what I've changed my mind about is that we should not just use tests to admit to school. We need to look downstream at the effects of using tests and at ethnic differences, uh, class differences. Uh, I don't know if there are gender differences in this case, but we need to really think about this holistically. And how does it feel to have changed your mind on a topic and talking about it? Well, that's an easy one because, um, you know, because I, so I'm a, a political centrist. I'm not a member of any team. Um, you know, I, I, I think the Republican Party has lost its, its soul and its mind, and I'm not indifferent between the parties, but I'm not on any team. Um, but because everybody around me is on the left, you know, in intellectual circles, universe, everybody's on the left. And so anytime when I can change my mind in a more left-leaning direction, it's, you know, it feels good because, uh, uh, you know, I know that I won't, you know, get uh, criticized for it. At least I'll be, I'll be welcomed. And uh, uh, Alex, if you'll just indulge me one extra question on this topic, which is you were talking earlier about 
when your reputation takes a hit mm-hmm. and where you've published your book and yeah. with the coddling and also with the, the righteous mind, which I, I know we all, well, all three of us love very much. Have you changed your mind on any of those issues with feedback that's come from, from readers with what you said? Oh, on the righteous mind? Um, well, on the three, so the book is organized around three principles, uh, yeah, and I haven't changed my mind on those. Oh, but yes, okay, here's the place where I really got it wrong. So, um, so one of the themes of the righteous mind is that. So the first principle of it is uh, intuition comes first, strategic reasoning second, and I talk about how our reasoning, our moral reasoning in particular, is really done in a social context. We're not necessarily trying to find the truth. We're trying to find justifications that will play well with others. We're always trying to look good. And I talk about Glaucon, the myth of um, uh, the, the myth of the Ring of Gyges in Plato, about how if you had a ring that made you invisible, behavior would be terrible, uh, Plato says, or uh, Glaucon says. And uh, so we need, you know, we need to always have our reputation always on the line. And so I said, I wrote this in 2011, and I said something like, a good society is one in which our reputations are on the line all the time. And so, you know, if you do something, there'll be you know, bad, there'll be reputational costs for it. Uh, and I thought that was an important design principle. Be careful what you wish for. You know, in 2011, <laughs> just as uh, I think 30 or 40% of American teenagers were on social media, um, I was writing that. And back then we all thought that, you know, Facebook and Google, these are wonderful companies that are making the world better. And in some ways they are, of course, but we didn't know what was coming. We didn't know what are the effects of having everybody's reputation on the line all the time with no mechanism for establishing truth. Mm. And that's what's happened to us is now we all live in a minefield. Um, as a professor, I'm teaching in a minefield. You never know what you're going to be reported for. Not that you report it often, but I mean, there's a sign in every bathroom uh, here at NYU telling students how to report me if I offend them. So the fact that we, so in other words, my rep, I am on the line all the time and it changes the way I teach. I teach very defensively. I don't dare say anything that might offend anyone. Um, so I really got that wrong. It comes back to your trust point. You were saying at the beginning, this master variable and why polarization or depolarization exactly. is so important. That's right. That's that's right. That's the most terrible thing about what's happening mm. on American campuses is that we don't trust each other anymore. Mm. Um, my whole career, I was teaching millennials at the University of Virginia, and I, I loved my students and I trusted them. I was a provocative teacher. I could trigger all kinds of emotions, including negative emotions, but I would wrap it up in a positive way by the end of the lecture because I trusted them. Mm. And now it's not that NYU is any worse. It's just that it's a different generation. And now I don't trust them. Most of them are great, but I can't know that every single person in the class will give me the benefit of the doubt. In fact, I know that some won't. Mm. I was speaking to a friend, uh, well, actually my mother-in-law the other week, who's a teacher in the UK. And I was describing, I think it was a piece in the New York Times or the Washington Post about um, schools in the States and about how parents are being sued for leaving their kids in the car asleep. I mean, I frequently leave my two-year-old when she's asleep in the car on the drive. Mm-hmm. And then I did the same in the States. I could be, you know, reported or sent to social services. But she was saying here That's in right. the UK, should, you know, it's as much as teachers want to give kids free time away from uh, any adult supervision, the risk of being sued is is all pervasive. And these huge risk assessments they have to do, it's, it's um, yeah. you know, structurally, they can't, they can't change it themselves. They can't do anything about it. No, that's that's right. So we need leadership here. We need yeah. laws. The state of Utah just passed the first free-range kids law, free-range parenting law, which says that you cannot be arrested, you cannot be charged uh, for having your kids be unsupervised. That is, you know, if there's other evidence of it, that's different. But if it's just that your kids are in a park, 
nearby and you're not there watching them, you can't be arrested for that. Um, here's a, for those who are doing risk assessment, I heard a, a useful statistic from Lenore Skenazy, uh, who wrote the book Free Range Kids. She said, given our current rates of child abduction in this country, if you leave your six-year-old in the backseat of your car while you go into a store and you leave the window open or another way indicate that the door, the car's unlocked, you would have to leave your child there for 700,000 years before there's a likelihood that he or she would be abducted. In other words, it pretty much never happens. Uh, but yeah, the risk of being arrested, that's a lot higher. That's a great statistic. That's really interesting. It's funny. What is something my parents always say, actually, is that in the past, things were just as they are now. Just no one knew about it. So they always say the fear of child abduction. Actually, things are safer. Things are so much safer now. The crime rate's down. The rates of accidents are down. It's so much safer now than it ever was. Absolutely. And I think from their generational perspective, that's it. They feel like people don't trust each other because they've seen it on the TV and they've concluded for themselves because of that risk that it is not safe. Um, And so they're not going to change their behavior because of the emotional response that's been you know, generated from the one thing they've seen. So uh, it's quite a hard thing to change. That's right. Exactly the same here. That's right. If I jump in uh, quickly, girls, then, uh, although I should say that John told me off for calling you girls before. No, you cannot say that on said, this side of the Atlantic. I know. Do you, do hey, you guys I'm going to report you. I, there's, a, there's a bathroom here. I'm going to go into the bathroom, get the number to report you for your sexism. Well, I, and what I actually said in response was I like being a little bit naughty sometimes. No, um, I was going to say, so. I feel I, I feel permanently old. I'm now I'm at the grand old age of 36. Someone calling me a girl makes me feel pretty good. So I'm not at all offended. In fact, on the contrary. <laughs> Makes people good. Yeah, I love British people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we probably all know each other well enough that we can get away with it too. But uh, you talked, uh, while well, talking about differences between the the UK and the US, how far do you think the observations you've made about US campuses and in, in coddling of the American mind mm. apply in the UK as well? Mm. Yeah, so from what I can tell, um, you're they're generally pretty similar. So these issues, the whole culture of safe space and, and all that, um, exploded here in 2014. And in general, the UK universities have been just a little bit behind. Um, but you, So the, whatever we have here tends to go across the Atlantic pretty quickly. Now, a couple of really interesting observations. One is that um, as we watched it spread, it spread to the UK, Canada, there's a little bit in Australia, uh, maybe a little bit in New Zealand, nothing on the continent of Europe. I don't hear any of this stuff on the continent. Um, in other words, there's political correctness in many places. That's been around for decades and decades. But the safetyism, the, the, the idea that words are going to be violence, words are traumatizing, this is a uniquely Anglosphere thing. And one possible reason why it's taken off in the Anglosphere nowhere else um, is that we modeled our top schools on yours, their residential colleges. And so these ideas that words are violence, that if a speaker is allowed to come to campus, uh, there will be death. I mean, not maybe literally death, but there'll be people so traumatized that they'll need hospitalization. Um, this idea is so bizarre to anybody over 30 or 40 regardless of whether they're on the left or the right, that it can't survive the light of day. The only way it can survive is if you have several hundred or thousand uh, young people, 18 to 21, all living together in these beautiful residential compounds at Oxford and Cambridge or Harvard and Yale. Um, So if you have a closed epistemic world where they're all linked to each other and not to common sense, then you can get these ideas flourishing. And so that's typical of the top schools in the Anglosphere. It's not the case in France and Germany. So that's one. Another is that in both of our countries, you know, I, I, people send me all sorts of things from the UK. Uh, there's a great story last winter about a, a, a head of school in, um, in East London who banned touching snow 
not just, you know, because it wasn't just don't kids don't throw snowballs at each other's face. It was nobody can touch snow because if someone touches snow, there could be a snowball fight. And if there's a snowball fight, somebody could get a snowball in the eye. And, you know, so um, and that's exactly <laughs> what's happened here is if there's a risk that it could hurt one person, we have to ban the activity. And before we know it, our kids are risk deprived, cutting themselves and going to the hospital. Uh, so I do think that you're overprotecting just as we are. Um, your student unions are different. A lot of the problem on campus seems to be caused by your student unions that are very, very political. We don't have things like that here. Um, you guys invented no platforming, uh, and I think we might have copied that from you. Um, so I think there is some transatlantic exchange of bad ideas going on. But in general, uh, you have more right to be mad at us than we have at you. Thank you. Although I, it's interesting, the amount of unions that are disaffiliating from what's called the NUS, the National Union of Students in the UK, because of the very political stances that they have taken. Oh, oh I'm so glad to hear um, that. And as a consequence, it's come out this week that NUS are really struggling financially. Great. Because they're not getting the affiliation fees. Well, I mean, it makes me slightly sad, I say, as a, former, as a former student activist, like the voice of students needs to be quite strong. And it yeah, can be hard. Yeah, but what do you want? Wait, wait, wait. As a former student activist, what do you want? Oh. Do you want do you want to actually solve problems or do you just want to yell and scream and attack people? But just because I said I was a student activist didn't mean I did those things. I was never okay. in favor of no platforming. But I did speak out very strongly, and I suspect both of both of my colleagues did, about the increasing rate of student fees or the changing of student debt. And oh, actually, yeah. a union that does that and is effective is really very important oh, fine. to Oh, sure, if it represents the interests of the students. But if it's hijacked for a narrow political agenda and one that we can show generally backfires, it gives ammunition to your enemies, it doesn't help the people you're trying to help, it probably hurts them. So, you know, I think... In America, we're all supposed to praise the student activists. So, you know, all of us faculty, we're supposed to say how wonderful it is that the students are so, are so much more activists now than they were 10 or 15 years ago. But my attitude is, if the activism is based on some careful analysis of what's wrong with society, and then you have a careful analysis of what may make it better, great, more power to you. That never, ever happens. Love it. I actually agree. I shouldn't say that, though. John, can I, can <laughs> I, can I, I'm totally with you. <laughs> can I ask um, one more kind of slightly more behavioural science type question? Your book, The Righteous Mind, made incredibly persuasive arguments about the triumph of emotion over reason. Um, and actually, one of our other guests, Hallie Sherrott, talks a lot about this uh, from her research from a more neuroscience perspective. But your newest book, Coddling, often appeals for people to be exposed to rational arguments through hearing mm -hmm. yep. uh, a more diverse set of viewpoints what, yep. can you i know where you're going with it it's, yeah. it's totally consistent yeah so how can okay. you can you expand on that a bit more sure sure so as individuals we're all kind of stupid as individuals we're like neurons each neuron takes in stimulus and it you know and it fires a pulse down the axon yeah. reward reward so each yeah. of us yeah so each of us as an individual is an intuitionist uh, driven by emotion um, somehow we got to the moon. Somehow we had decades of, of peace in the West. Somehow we have amazing accomplishments. Those don't happen because one person is so smart that they figured it out. Those happen because we have institutions that put us together in the right way so that we cancel out each other's confirmation bias. Mm. And so each of us is an emotional, uh, you know, hypersocial creature concerned more with reputation than with truth. But if you put us together in a university, where I have, if I'm going to make an argument, I have to give evidence 
And I know that others will attack that evidence and give counter evidence, and I have to be responsive to it. That's what I love about universities. I love being a professor. I love being an academic. And that's why I've become kind of an activist, I guess, because what I see happening is even in classroom discussions, talk to students at our top universities, even in classroom discussions, if someone asserts something about race, gender, politics, immigration, inequality, or almost anything else that's politicized, if someone asserts something, others are thinking, well, what about counterargument X? But they won't say it. They're mm. afraid. Mm. And when that happens, the magical powers of universities to create intelligence and discovery from imperfect inputs, namely individual human beings, that magical ability dies, and that's where we are. And that's why I think any group that suffers from political homogeneity, that suffers, is likely to suffer from orthodoxy, and therefore is guaranteed to get it wrong, guaranteed to give you the wrong answer at any interesting or complex social problem. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Changed My Mind. John's latest book, The Coddling of the American Mind, is out now. You can find out more about us on the depolarizationproject.com or follow us on Twitter at Depol Project. Next week, we'll be talking to a business leader who changed her mind about the value of marriage after a transformational personal experience. We'd like to thank our producer, Caroline Crampton, Open Democracy, who helped share the show with their many readers, and Kevin McLeod, whose dreams become real is used under Creative Commons as our music.